What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's a huge one, folks. This is the long-lost Lance Bangs episode. Lance Bangs, of course, is well-known for his directing, his work with the visuals in all sorts of bands. It's an incredible episode, not because of me at all, but more on that in a second. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there that you can hit me up at. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien, L-E-F-T-F-O-R-D-A-M-I-A-N. You can also go over to Facebook.com and you can like the Turn Out of Punk Facebook page. It's run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. He'll get the message to me. Whatever you want me to know, you let him know. And he'll let me know. We also post stuff up on there that gets sent into the show from various listeners and things like that. So worth the follow or worth the like, I should say, if you use Facebook. If you don't use Facebook, you can go over to Tumblr.com. And we post all that same stuff on the turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com page. And uh, I guess that's about it for ways that you can get in touch with us. But if you want to support this show, you can go over to iTunes and you can subscribe to this thing. You can write a review. You can rate it. If you don't use iTunes, you can tell all your friends about it. But if you do use iTunes, you will notice that we have a couple other podcasts in this little podcast family. There's, of course, Turned Out a Punk. There is Turned Out a Punk Footnotes, which is run by myself and Chris O'Toole, where each week we dissect a Turned Out a Punk episode and get kind of into... All the kind of nerdy, great stuff that gets brought up that we just gloss over on this show. Don't worry, on footnotes, Chris O'Toole and myself, we dissected. There is also uh, Clobbering Time, which is Tom Bryan, 
an editor over at StereoGum.com, and myself. And each week we talk about pro wrestling. We have a lot of guests from the world of music. We've had some great guests so far. We're going to have great guests in the future. So check out that podcast. There's also Oil and Flowers, which is myself and DJ Buddha Blaze uh, talking about cannabis. Talking about cannabis with guests. That is coming soon. So you'll find all that in the feed for now. They'll have their own feeds eventually. So don't freak out if you don't like those podcasts. Don't have to listen to them. Just keep listening to Turn Out of Punk. And uh, yeah, that's it. I think for now. On to today's show. So I'm recording this right now in the bathroom of a hotel room. But I only tell you that to explain why I'm trying to keep my voice is somewhat quiet right now because I don't want to get thrown out of the hotel, which is a, a genuine fear that you have this late at night when you're talking to yourself at a, at a louder than normal volume. But um, also, I wanted to get to the fact that this is the Lost Lance Bangs episode. Now, for those of you who don't know him, you are certainly familiar with stuff he's worked on or his work, maybe without even knowing it. He's done stuff with Jackass, with Odd Future, with Nirvana, with R.E.M., with Mercury Rev, with, like, uh, like there's so much. This is He is one of these people that has been in every almost important place in pop culture that you can be in. He is one of those... Those those rare people that's just there, you know, like this is one of those great episodes because of that. Now, here's why it is not such a great episode. First of all, this is probably the worst uh, interview I've ever done on this show. I had stayed up all night the night before recording the interview with Steve McDonald. If you want to go back, you can listen to that episode. And so I was exhausted. And I was in New York for Vice 20 a big party that they had put together. We were putting this band together with John Joseph. We talk about this in some previous episodes, so go back and listen to those ones if you uh, are, are so want to hear more of this story, because I assure you, it's worth it. Um, I think we talked about it on the Steve McDonald one. Uh, anyway, so I was exhausted, and I decided that the best way to kind of get ready for this Lance Bangs interview, which I had early that next morning, was by drinking a ton of coffee. And I don't drink coffee. So when you listen to this, you will hear a decidedly different Damien than uh, you'll, you hear normally. I'm very excited, and so I have to, first of all, apologize to Lance for that, because I cut him off a lot, and I jump on what he's saying a lot. Uh, you know, but in, in spite of that, this is still an amazing conversation, because Lance is so open, and Lance is so awesome, and he really, you know, talks about... Some incredibly personal parts of his life, and you know, lets you know uh, me into that. And you know, this is in spite of the fact that I'm jumping over everything he's saying because I am flying on caffeine a million miles a minute. So I apologize to Lance for that. Also, I apologize to him uh, because once again, I apologize to him as I apologize to him on this podcast, and I've apologized to him about this numerous times since then. But I uh, had a blank spot in my memory of meeting him. And this is from me, who's a huge fan of his. And I have a bunch of these weird blank spots in my memory all around the time that I was using certain anti-anxiety medications. Um, and I'm not talking about the natural one that I use now, weed. I'm talking about a certain pharmaceutical one that I was using. And I have these weird moments in my mind that I don't remember any of the details of. And hanging out with Lance Banks... The first time, 
is one of these experiences. And now I don't want to say it's because of the medication, because let's be honest, I've also made a bit of a career out of smashing cans and microphones into my head. And so I know I've, and I've also taken a few hits to the head over the years as well. Um, but you know, it, it is something that I, uh, I, I think about and I worry about and, uh, you know, it's something I'm a little self-conscious about, that there's these moments that I just don't remember, you know, and here I'm meeting someone that I'm a huge fan of that's a massive, massively influential and, you know, inspirational person to me, and I don't even remember the first time I met him, you know, it's just this weird black spot in my mind, um, and, you know, there's, I, same with the first time I met Nardwar, I don't remember that at all either, you know, I remember the second time I met Nardwar, thankfully, but not the first time. Um, so yeah, so all of this kind of added up to me being incredibly self-conscious about this episode and about putting it out there. Uh, so I ran into Lance when we were at Riot Fest and he and I were hanging out and I brought up this episode and he was like, you should put it out. Um, and so, yeah, I've decided to put it out. So like I got over myself because it's worth hearing for everyone else because there's some awesome stuff in this episode. And as I say, Lance will be back for a part two. Uh, this was just the beginning. Um, and he is someone, yeah, if you, you know, go and check some of the stuff he's worked on. I'm sure you already are very familiar with a lot of the stuff he worked on. And, uh, you know, just bask in the glory of the fact that here's this one person, you know, who's in so many kind of key moments in, I don't know, the, the musical universe, the pop culture universe that I find fascinating. So please sit back relax and enjoy one of the very first turn out of punk episodes that I ever did way back when in the heady days of December 2014 Lance Bangs on Turned Out of Punk Okay Lance thank you so much for coming or well, me coming to you I guess and, yeah. and having this is awesome like I really you're someone that I, I wanted to interview and I like I guess we never met until this trip, but I saw you at that Odd Future uh, in-store in Toronto. We uh, met, I filmed uh, Fucked Up in 2007 or 2008 when you were playing at uh, South By. At the, did we meet though? Oh yeah, you were wearing like a... South By is like the weirdest, yeah. weirdest uh, mash of no sleep and energy drinks for me. So I apologize, but you I might have been wearing like a UGK shirt. Yeah, yeah, the giant and, uh, UGK shirt. Yeah. I have like very little memories of that. I was that was back when I was on anti-anxiety pills, so I had <laughs> huge gaps. So I apologize for that. No, we like we ran out of Austin for a little bit yeah. at that time. Yeah, that's right. Holy shit, that's totally so weird. Because then when I saw you with I'm like, oh shit, that's Lance Banks, completely blanking out <laughs> that I had met you in Austin. Then. Yeah. Well, then, do we have a good time? We had a great time. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Yeah. A lot of talk about Bun B. <laughs> no. Uh, was we it, saw a good it was Deer Hunter the, show. Was that the, it was the MJ played, the yeah. first Jay Retard show, or the second Jay Retard show, I guess, he had ever done yeah. in that little room. I have very weird little recollections of that day. Yeah, I was, I was shooting a bunch yeah. of film with Jay at that that's time. Funny. I'd been sort of uh, in contact with him from, like, 2006 or, 2000, you know, 2005, 2006. I was filming a bunch of documentary footage with him and then shot the live stuff he was yeah. at that time. That's great. Well, okay, before we get to all that, I guess we should start at the very beginning and the way we start them all, it's, which is, how, so how did you get into punk? I feel like I got into it. I, I was in a military family that moved around quite a bit, mm -hmm. and I would guess that when I was like starting to read, I was born in 1972, kind of at the end of the year. Um, so at the time of like 77, 78, 79, 80, when things were 
popping up mm. in, like, at least it, we might have been, like, in Willingboro, New Jersey, sort of on the East Coast at that time. You would see things on, like, you know, TV transmissions out of New York or Philadelphia where Fear like, would turn up on Saturday Night Live yeah. or there'd be an episode of Quincy with punks Quincy or there would be, you know, these little pockets of things turning up. Or just as, like, weird local color profiles on local news, mm-hmm. there'd be, you know, look at the splendid pageantry of the kids lining up outside yeah. to see the Buzzcocks, the band that's named, can we say that on the air? You know, yeah. that sort of thing was going on. And uh, Patti Smith was, you know, popping up on, on talk shows and appearances and had this really great song that she did. I, I think I'm like, I don't know if it was a Today Show or Mike Douglas. She did her poem that's like, you know, she had just like fallen off a stage and had the neck yeah, brace the neck on brace. And, and was like, you know, I was working really hard to show the world what I could do. And it just like, as a child, it Resume. like clicked. It's like, here's this woman that looks like the sort of archetypical Keith Richards rock and roll, yeah. you know, that aesthetic, but yeah. is like doing something that's like clear and, and refined and poetic and yet is like working in a sing-songy way for a five-year-old's brain to like process and be like, oh, this is like much more charismatic than the woman that's teaching me in kindergarten, but, like, these words are delivered in a similar, a similar way. way. But yeah. this is, like, exciting. That's awesome that that resonated at such a young age, Yeah, too. like, that it's just stuck with me, you know. Yeah. So I, I started actively seeking things like that out. So there was, you know, used bookstores or newsstands at the time where you could kind of plow through whatever the normal People magazine stuff was. Yeah. There was also Cream. weird pockets of, like, punk kind of influencing writers at places that, you know, they weren't necessarily, like... Because there's a stigma at the time. It looked like clownery. Like, it looked like, you know, the sort of the safety pin, you know, spiked hair, mm-hmm. bad hair dye look was something that felt like goofballs or people that were like, look at me, look at me, or kind of zany people. And there was that period of, like, almost like, yeah, punk exploitation, Yeah. Like overload. Where <laughs> yeah. You have like, yeah, like the but punks episode. People who liked the, what, the, the feeling or the regurgitation of culture and everything getting smashed. Like, people that were writing it maybe like a humor magazine mm-hmm. and took that aesthetic and would start writing weirder stuff. But like Marvel magazine, Marvel, the comic book thing, yep. they had like a, a cheap knockoff of mad magazine at the time called crazy that I don't think anyone is bothering to, but you know, there's like yeah. cracked and crazy and mad. I was a huge mad fan. Yeah. Like, collected like the comic book editions totally. and all that. So they would handle punk a little bit, but then this, it felt like really? the writing staff, the writing staff of this like one wow. weird Marvel thing, crazy that no one was buying just like went dark and fucked up and like, <laughs> Like, shifted their mascot to this, like, fucked up, like, disgusting character, Obnoxio the Clown, and started, like, covering, like, all the dark films that were coming out at the time, like, uh, taking the Pelham 123 or Taxi Drive, like, really, like, going deep into that vein and, like, doing kids' parodies of those kind of things or uh, Escape from New York or whatever. Yeah. And, And so you could tell that the people there writing were, you know, were probably, like, in New York City and taking drugs and... Disillusion and hanging out with Lester Bangs and well, that's what, like, I guess I guess would punk have been in punk would have already been yeah, yeah for sure so I'm sure that's where they wanted to be yeah yeah you know. yeah doing that kind of vibe so that kind of overlap with just people that were probably in New York and hanging out at you know Max's or CBGB's or whatever at the time and like had some shitty writing staff job what yeah. we're gonna do what they could with it you know? yeah so did, were you just picking this up as like, yeah, like yeah like the weird oh, things okay, you would spot yeah, at a newsstand yeah. or a used bookstore or whatever that like I'm just kind of piecing it stood out or, or pieced out or like you know. And there's, it was also, like, sort of, I would say by 80, like, Debbie Harry was on mm-hmm. season five of The Muppet Show. And, like, mm-hmm. that was maybe the first, like, physical attraction to somebody. Like, seeing something that was like, whoa, like, this, what's happening yeah. here? This is exciting. Like, <laughs> why am I feeling this way? That uh, she kind of, like, cut through. And then you would see her doing, you know, just, like, performing on 
again, like late night TV shows yeah. or whatever as a kid. Yeah, because at that point it was kind of crossing over to the new wave. Yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. So, w- at what point were you? Do you think you went to your first show? Do you remember? Oh, man. Actually, maybe before that, did you buy a record? Like, what did you remember? Yeah, like show? I picked up stuff um, at the time. Like, I think there was some confusion. The sort of the leather jacket look that the Ramones are pulling off, and then. Fonzie also on TV, but like yeah. clearly was like, wait, that's not the same thing, you know. But yeah. then uh, associating that with punk, I think I might have had a babysitter give me a copy of uh, the game by the by the band Queen, okay. which looked yeah. like maybe yeah. like that leather look. But then yeah. it was like, wait, this is a super process, <laughs> but like kind of dark and fun record, like this kind of you know, don't oh, try to suicide. Awesome. Yeah, and like I loved another one bites of dust at that time. I loved Under Pressure. Yeah, but like clearly it was like okay, they're they're mining that look. I mean, a different version of yeah. the, sort of the biker look, but. Uh, realizing that there's all these different things that were coming out at that time that were using leather jackets that were variations yeah. of like rebellion. Yeah, or well, I guess it was like the symbol. I remember there's like the Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny ad with yep. Bugs Bunny leather jacket <laughs> totally. when they started when they acquired Sire Sire Records. Yeah, and, and everything like that. So, so I don't know. I think that like that was like a mistaken attempt at buying something that I thought looked like it might be. Well, that's punk, when you're but... that age, you're like you're still like figuring out the signpost. Like, <laughs> totally. You're like, oh, this is what not the indicators punk, are. Punk. Yeah, and this is punk and everything. Um, so it might have been more like a straight up like Patti Smith or Sex Pistols record yeah. that like really you know caught through and counted and you know the clash was on the radio things were things were available at least like in the northeast like did it, you, you know did you actually like this is like a weird question that i always kind of bring up but did you ever you know were you a clash or a sex pistols fan like i have more? to say like i like the energy the sex pistols more there's yeah. the, there's catchier stuff going on with some of the clash but um they felt cokey by the time that i was like really listening to it, you could tell that they were like indulgent coked out dudes to some mm-hmm. extent like it, it felt like they were you would see them in the stuff where it's like, to them is exciting or ironic to be like riding around in a big American car convertible, yeah. but it yeah. felt like, oh, these are like, they're wearing sunglasses and like being comfortable and. Well, the, the, the <laughs> I sex pistols, I guess, were that perfectly preserved slice of time. Yeah. Like, I love, I'm the, I'm the same way. Never mind the Bullocks is like, you know, like the Clash, like, I'm not throwing the baby yeah. the bathwater yeah. on them, but like, yeah, it's just like, I don't know, something about the sex pistols that was like a confluence of time and space that yeah. brought everything there. and and I've had a great time listening to The Clash over the years. There's yeah. great moments in my life yeah, associated absolutely. with them. But, like, there really was this sort of, like, I had this anti-indulgence thing where anyone that felt like they were in that, like, weird, coked-out, self-congratulatory mode was not what I was connecting with or identifying with. So at which point would you go, would you say where you went to your first, like, well, I guess even, like, concert or show? Did you yeah, there's a couple things. I think it was called The Fresh Fest. I ended up, like, because we're in a military family moving around quite yeah, a bit, yeah. and was in Montgomery, Alabama by the mid-'80s. Were you encountering other people on the bases that were in a punk? Like, yeah, you know, weirdly enough, I have to say, like, there were pockets of that, because you're, you're being uprooted a lot, and maybe there's a sense of disassociation with what's going on around you and yeah. looking for uh, things that speak to that. Um, and there's a, uh, you know, I have to say, like, within military culture, there are people that sort of, because you are in such a uniform look, and, mm-hmm. you, you know, people do try and distinguish themselves or, or have a little thing that's their thing. Yeah. You know, so there's the guy that's like really into rap in 81, you know, like yeah, already yeah, that's yeah. his thing. And you know, that's the guy that likes that stuff. And, uh, so these, these post exchanges where they, I think that like the, the prices of things are really kept low so that a people can afford it on the mm-hmm. sort of, I mean, currently like the, the salary for a, someone in the army, the first year or two is like 18,500, you know, it's an incredibly low, low yeah. pay lifestyle that, uh, they keep the cost of these things low and there's no sales tax on them when you buy them on the base. So you could get cassettes of, Sandinista for like $4, you know, like yeah. it was this entirely affordable thing to yeah. like 
entertain yourself by like oh anyhow that's on CBS Columbia Records yeah, at so the time it's widely available yeah and, and you're reading you know the press is writing about it. if you pick up a Rolling Stone magazine and they're saying what the good records are they're saying Sandinista you know yeah yeah so it's not really that hard for you know it was out there in the world yeah absolutely um, so I was you know sort of exposed to stuff and there were. Uh, 85, I would guess it was probably like in Montgomery, Alabama, there's this thing called the Fresh Fest, which was Fat Boys, Run DMC, wow. Dougie Fresh, like all these was great it fresh was it package records. I mean, no, it was like people that were offshoots of, um, you know, Rush Management in New York yeah, okay. at that time kind of put together this package deal where they're capitalizing on the momentum of Run DMC yeah. and, and putting yeah. together like other New York acts to go out and, and do shows. And, and, uh, and so. Just from being around people on the base and like other kids, you know, certainly like most white culture in Alabama at the time hadn't caught on to it. But it was like you had friends that were like, like, like yeah, like, and I love the Fat Boys. Like, I think they're one of the great underrated hip hop duos. Like when they were just a disco three and just like performing what they wanted to perform, they yeah. were impeccable MCs. Right. And, I, and, and then they got talked into doing that ridiculous, like, let's make a novelty act out of you and make all the songs about food. But I, I think that's probably just because like. Well, you know, at that point, like, you look at all the hip-hop artists, and I guess with the exception of, well, even Run DMC, it was like, everyone's like, all right, what's the gimmick we're going to stick on this band? <laughs> yeah. Like, Run DMC, it's like leather, like the leather suits. But yeah. I guess they probably chose to wear two, but it became like, yeah. you know, the thing. And, and So Disco 3 was great. Those are great MCs. They got repackaged as fat boys. And they're great in that context, And I too. saw Disorderlies in the theater and loved <laughs> yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. Loved so, it. So they were, they were in, like, in movies and stuff. Yeah. So they did a great performance at the Montgomery Civic Center uh, that I went to that was, like, the first live show. And I had to, like, you know, sneak out of the house to go to it yeah. kind of thing. But it was yeah. great. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I went, like, officially, like, with, you know, people and parents knowing that I was going to see Hollow Notes with... Um, the opening act was English Beat. Oh, wow. And that was, so yeah. that, they might yeah, have been absolutely. the first thing I saw. That was fun. Uh, but there weren't a whole lot of options of, like, what, punk things going on in Montgomery in 1985. Yeah, I can't even think of, you know, Alabama hardcore bands from that era. Yeah. Even. And, and so I guess you're, like, kind of yeah, restricted to what you have access to on that base and, yeah. and, and things like, and who's your people around you. Yeah. But there were, you know, again, there were bookstores. There was, like, mm-hmm. places to go hear music at record stores. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I guess at that point also there's the Indie Network has established itself. So there is distribution chains. for. Like, I think it's SSD getting stuff. established at that time. I don't know if it's really fully. There's a chain called Turtles Records and Tapes, and they were an offshoot of a thing called Peaches. It was somewhere else yep. in the South. But, um, you know, they would have, like, U2 imports, and by 85, you know, there, mm-hmm. it wasn't impossible to... Not that that's punk, you know what I mean. No, no, were, it's you know, pretty, yeah, it's like they, for it's Montgomery, Alabama, like you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I couldn't find any Joy Division stuff there. It wasn't until like I got back to New Jersey that the imported. Had you heard of like Joy Division? I would read about them. Like I would, you know, like there was a good uh, Robert Palmer, the writer for New York Times, wrote a really nice thing about Ian after he passed away in May of 1980, and uh, I happened to read that in the New York Times when it ran. And it was probably like eight years old or whatever, and it kind of you're thinking about death at that time yeah, a little bit, yeah, and yeah. it triggers like you're wow, like so he like killed himself like how does that you know that's so like and, and I it's it's so weird to like think about a time where you would hear about a band yeah and not immediately like click 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 oh that's yeah. everything about them yeah and stuff like that so like when you did when you did finally hear them was it like what you had expected from this not at all like <laughs> because the you know that that sort of drum pattern and sound at the beginning of Unknown Pleasures yeah it's so cold and alien and, and creates its own world and heavy atmosphere but if you've been coming into it having read about them in the lineage of it's expecting them to sound anything like the Buzzcocks or yeah, Sex Pistols, yeah. it's it's a different totally different beast. Yeah. Which is great. And you know, it's something I just plunged headlong into. 
So when you got back to New Jersey, like, I like so you're eight years old, getting into Joy Division. And reading about Joy Division. I'm not going to, yeah. Okay, but yeah, like, yeah. When you got, what was like, so what age were you? It's probably up? not until like 86 that we got back up to New Jersey out of Alabama, maybe 86, 87. So you're like nine or 10? I guess so, yeah. That's pretty young. <laughs> it's like a, and yeah, an and early so like, adopter to say the yeah. least. And there's other things that weren't straight punk that were like really gripping my brain. Like whenever the, in 1983, I think there's a Pink Floyd album called The Final Cut. Mm-hmm. And I really responded as a kid to the imagery of the wall. I was probably like, you know, yeah. in 79 when that came out and then maybe 80 when it was really on the radio. Um, so that's like uh, seven or eight years old. Just like, you know, that yeah. that album cover is, a very, is something as a kid you yeah, can striking. connect and striking. And like if you open up the gatefold and see those like animated drawings it's like whoa like yeah. you know in the sort of like yeah i hate school <laughs> fuck teachers yeah. kind yeah. of thing it really you know in a simplistic way connected but then maybe there's things on there that are taking your brain in other directions beyond what yeah that was like before i got into punk that was like the uh the last sort of like record i was obsessed with yeah pre- getting into sonic youth and, and totally from that <laughs> so when they put out the final cut i bought that and it had a really great uh review by kurt loader and Rolling Stone magazine probably in 83. There's a wedding that happened where, like, some family member or some uncle of mine was getting married, and, like, I was bored and kind of detached from whatever was going on at the reception and went to the newsstand that was in the hotel lobby and, like, read that issue of Rolling Stone all the way through and saw, like, this really intense description of this, like, super nihilistic, depressed, self-indulgent Pink Floyd record where the guy was on the verge of killing himself. And, and again, it was like, wow, like, I've got to hear this right away. This is exciting. And, like... Imagining it as like a follow up to the wall, but it's like one of the bravest, most fucked up, indulgent records anyone's ever done. Like it's the most insular, the final cut. And that's it's just like Roger Waters something. processing like his father's death, yeah. and you know, sort of like Margaret Thatcher's England and the attack on the Falkland Islands, and and so the fact that they were operating at that level of being like you know the hugest mm-hmm. empire building band that they could have possibly been. And be like, no, I'm just going to take the reins and make this record about this. It was kind of shocking. And it had this holophonic sound approach where they had done this, this guy, this Italian guy, Zuccarelli, had invented ways of sort of like phasing things so that you had a sense of spatial distance of something like three quarters of the way behind your left ear and five feet back. And, and so there's all these sound effects and gimmicks of like, you know, ICBM missiles going around your head or explosions or like footsteps drifting from like, you know, three quarters in front of you to behind you. And so like that was also just in a weird technological way, like putting on headphones and listening on a cassette Walkman and taking that in like this very trippy, trippy experience. experience. Yeah. But not like what you would think of a normal psychedelia or, no, no, you know, because no. I resented all of that. <clears throat> you didn't, you weren't, you weren't a fan of any of that stuff. It was, no, I, I hated everything about adult culture at the time. And so anything that felt like, Again, like kind of '60s era, hey man, like self-comforting stuff or uh, indulgent '80s, like coked out stuff. Both were so repugnant to me, mm-hmm. and I just wanted nothing to do with it. And I I'd had a, kind of traumatic experiences with people, older people, and was trying to get away from having to be around anybody that was over. Uh, yeah, a distrust of the elderly, yeah, or the aged. Um, so, like, so at which point were you like, you know, going to like, like? Like concerts, like that would be back. That would be up in New Jersey, uh, sort of in the mid to late '80s. Once I got out of Alabama, there was like a, a network of like house shows and really and, so and, and hall shows and stuff like that okay. going on. Yeah. So, were those some of those bands you were checking out at that time? Uh, I was in a couple bands at the time, and then there were other bands around. So, you well, know, you were in bands too. Yeah. Time. So there, were, you know, at, coming out of like Philly, there was like Token Entry, yeah. Pagan Babies. Yeah. There's a place called the Franklin YMCA that was doing like yeah. hardcore shows. Uh, so is that scene in a way to kind of like connect to hardcore stuff? It was close enough to City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, mm-hmm. where you could go see like all the great touring bands are coming through. And there's a for people that don't know that venue, it's 
It was a warehouse building in Calhoun Street in Trenton, New Jersey, in a very beat up, sketchy, dangerous neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, you know, within walking distance of it, there was a sort of like junkyard of cars, and I was I was already like shooting a bunch of uh, Super 8 film and kind of documenting places I was staying when I left home um, during that time, and so we'd go shoot film there and then go see bands and. Everybody would come through, and then you know this guy Randy that was that was booking everything had a, a great sensibility and took chances on stuff, and would put together these really great lineups. But also, it was close enough to New York and Philly, but didn't compete with the press in either place. Mm-hmm. That like the Ramones could come down and make whatever however, however many thousand dollars you get for playing a punk show at that time, yeah. and it wouldn't step on their New York drawer and be like, ah, they're all playing all the time. Or I heard all those songs already. Like it didn't you know infect that. And then Sonic Youth could come down and try out all the material for Daydream Nation and not worry about writers for the Village Voice being like, oh, this one's long and indulgent. Or, you know, like they yeah. could experiment with stuff. And again, you were playing to like weirdo teenagers in New Jersey and not the New York City writers, but you were, you know, it took you like an hour and 15 minutes to get there or something. You know? so, so what were some of the bands you were playing? Like what style at least were? Like- I was uh, probably like more like Joy Division stuff. Like I was okay. doing what was probably like closer to spoken vocals or spoken word, uh, mostly stuff that had originated as like journal entries or confessional writing from stuff I was going through. Um, but trying to not work in the, the normal bass guitar drums idiom of what was going on with like rock and roll. Like we, this friend, Tom Salmon, who was, you know, playing in hardcore bands mm-hmm. and just like, he was a year or two older than me. And, uh, when I was leaving home, his grandparents' basement was where I could like safely crash sometimes. And he had like a four track recorder and just like a really great guy, super solid, yeah. like, you know, punk character at that time. And we would do like four track recordings. We would fuck, we would like steal um, Casio keyboard. There was like Casio sampling keyboards that were out, like the era of like what had been invented technologically yeah, at that yeah, time. Yeah. And there's a whole racket within the East Coast of uh, like wall to wall sound and video and silo and like all these like electronics chains yeah. were like in Crazy Eddie's. It had this like super competitive vibe against each other of like undercutting Would pricing be any of like, our competitive yeah, like, prices. and you know, like yeah. you can get a turntable for $19. Yeah. And, and then just this, I don't know what was going on with like how much people were buying electronics at that time, but like enough to sustain multiple vendors like competing against each other and then like all right we're, that that jbc tape deck is four months old here's the new one that does the azimuth yeah. coordinator and the dual reverse and you know just it's like constant arms race going on of that stuff so you could get weird electronics equipment and people are shifting over to cds so like you know stuff. cassette stuff was yeah. like being marked down it was you know it's like a weird era where you had access to things to like record yourself mic things amplify them so we were taking like weird keyboards and fucking with those and I, I wanted to be able to like play guitar at the same time we didn't want to add other people because it it felt too vulnerable what we were doing with the music that we didn't want to have like some mouth breathing drummer behind us like you know so uh would like take butter knives and tape them to the keys of the keyboard chords that i figured i wanted to play and then be able to step on those like a pedal to like make these drone chords we were like yeah. you know listening to white light white heat and Jesus and Mary Chain stuff. And so was that, yeah, that, was, is that the influence of that? Basically, like, yeah, probably, like, I would say, you know, the Big Stars third, the kind of weird, spooky stuff on that, which, at the time, we, yeah, I think it might have been called Sister Lovers on the version that we, there's, like, a 78 pressing out of France okay. on PVC records that might have been called Sister Lovers instead of third or whatever. And so yeah. that's how we knew it. And that, that, like, the configuration on that record and the track listing is a much heavier, darker mm-hmm. Probably heroin. I don't know. Yeah, heroin, drug but like adult. drug out, like you <laughs> know, adult. version of it that doesn't start with like you know the upbeat songs yeah. or whatever. So uh, we were into that, and you know, Velvet Underground stuff, the John Cale stuff after Velvet Underground. It's like what we were into, and then um, you know, at the time, there's Jesus and Mary Chain stuff in the mid '80s that was coming out that sounded like 
noise, fucked up stuff that was interesting. So we were making these, um, you know, four-track cassette recordings, you know, teenage poetry, journal entry, confessional writing stuff over it, uh, and playing a little bit of guitar. He was playing guitar as well. And for percussion, I didn't want to have another person around behind us. Like, and so saying, yeah. I almost had this, like, distrust, just like a lot of physical distrust about people being behind me. You know, just I've been through some really horrific stuff at that point. And uh, so I took a... They had these hot air popcorn poppers at the time that you'd like put kernels in some. Yeah. And I would like stick a, a mic down into that with a lot of reverb. Like a, I think it's called a PZM mic. Is that right? Like the one that's like a surface mic. I have like literally, like you saw how bad I was at setting up yeah. this stuff. You now know my technological there's, abilities. There's a kind of microphone that Radio Shack had, which again, okay. like we probably like stole or whatever that yeah, you could yeah. snake. You lay it down on a surface and it just like it records differently than the sort of a a room mic. A room, or yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, and put it down inside like a hotter popcorn popper with like a huge amount of delay on it and would just like turn that on in the background so you just it's got this kind of hum and like after like 45 seconds or whatever when things heat up and it starts to like pop you get these in, insane explosive sounds of like the kernels of popcorn bursting <laughs> with distortion and, and reverb like so it's just like the song is building with like how uh, the Taconi Palmyra bridge driving over again you know like, yeah, like yeah. and then like this cacophony of like multiple exploding bursts going off like and the audience is like completely unnerved and freaked out so uh, you mentioned you'd already started filming at this point yeah when like you know you obviously found got a camera yeah but, like were there film influences at that point for you or no I, I hadn't really seen a lot of um like super film stuff or not really yeah. it was just like it was a it was like the only tool or format to sort of document what i was going through or where i was staying i was like leaving home and staying in a lot of uh 24-hour laundromats or gas station bathrooms that I'd lock myself like, into. How long were you home, homeless or like i wouldn't say homeless i would say like leaving and running away and then you know going back sometimes when i needed to yeah. uh I, Basically, we had a, a dog that that ran away from used, and I just um, started like biking around trying to find it. And yeah. then when I something clicked, you know, at that age, like driving around, like trying to find it, like oh wait, like it got out. Yeah. Oh, oh like it might be better off. Like I'm better off. Like you know, wow. that, like that somehow. So what age are you at this point? Like I was pretty uh, pretty young. Yeah. And so from that point, I started kind of heading out at night, and and then started like feeling vulnerable after some things happened and started taking cameras or tape recorders with me with the idea that like I wanted before I disappeared to have some recording of what so that's what you, that was your yeah. thing you wanted to just um, and then that just kind of kept growing and I got more comfortable having a camera in my hand or felt like a way of engaging the world or just in myself or protecting myself by having it and then started filming things and liking what I saw At the time you could you know super eight cartridges were really cheap or pocketable and the processing was always inexpensive. It was mm-hmm. like you know, dollar forty nine at Big B Drugs to get a roll of Super Eight processed. So it was, it wasn't like an extravagant thing to go shoot some film and get it back and be able to like watch it on a projector in the privacy of your room. It, it's weird because like I, I kind of, I, I like, I, obviously I didn't go through a, an abuse situation, but I did have like this spell where I like was like, well, this is it. I'm going to end my life, and it was, it was very, mine was very just like it was like a mental health kind of breakdown yeah. situation that I was in at the time. And, and, and that's what brought it on and kind of worked through it. But it, 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 it's, it's like a real different thing to do it so young, you know, yeah. and like it, it, I, I can only, I, well, I can't imagine. So you, was it the film that kind of brought you out of it in a little? I don't know that I really came out of it. No, like I, came, I, I don't mean to like, like, like yeah. everything's cool. You may still be in it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, was it, was it the film that it was a definitely you, a way that a survival I mean, tool for sure. Yeah. That's what yeah. got you out of the, the situation yeah. mentally where about ending it. Type yeah. Thing. And things remained horrible for a long time. You know, yeah. it wasn't like that 
solved everything. No, you know? no, no. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to imply that at all. Um, Sorry. So, uh, but that was a, that was sort of like what my life became, or yeah. how I sort of functioned in the world from that point onwards. And um, was it once like other cultures started popping up, and, and there was like you know a, a band playing live or interesting kids hanging out or whatever, like, you know, filming that and trying to preserve that. Cause it also felt like there was a, a drowning happening where there was this deluge, like the, I don't know it's, I don't know if people who didn't live through it can even imagine or not feel like I'm being hyperbolic, but like mm-hmm. there was a suffocation happening where there were so many people within that baby boomer generation and they had so much wealth and power at the time that they were, you know, being catered to and advertised mm-hmm. to by the media and such a lack of imagination, um, for what could be that like you, you know, I was saying earlier that there was this pocket of time where, like, maybe Columbia or CBS was backing the Clash or whatever. Yeah. But, like, after stopped. that, like, it stopped. And yeah. it was this regressive thing where, like, <laughs> it really was just, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp and John Bon Jovi. And, and certainly, like, being in New Jersey in, like, 87 or so, like, every kid being duped into, like, moving around and reacting to John Bon Jovi while the replacements were playing at City Gardens and not having anyone show up was, like, what the fuck is wrong with well, all of you? It's funny because you say that because, like, you know, talking to... Tom Sharpling, yeah. he was like, he talked about the boss as being the oppressive force. Yeah. But I guess that because he was like, he's a few years older than <laughs> yeah. you. So it's like, it would have been like, I guess that was the Bon Joe, pre Bon Joe yeah. kind of curse. And you just felt like all these kids are blowing it. Like all the other 14 year olds around you who could be making things way better for the Pixies and yeah. Nirvana and, yeah. and Sonic Youth and, you know, and Lydia Lunch, everything weird that was going on. Yeah, like, I was, okay. had no interest in that. And we're just like, yeah, Cinderella, John Bon Jovi. Were you, <laughs> were you aware of cinema of transgression? Yeah. That stuff's kind of going on. Yeah, that right? stuff's going on. Yeah. So there's film threat magazines exactly. here, like, you know, picking that up and reading yeah. about that stuff and seeing still images. But there was, a, again, like a kind of a... About a complete run of film threat a couple years ago. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, I worked at a video store and this guy came in he's like, I'm selling this stuff. It was like some yeah. awesome old exploitation posters and a complete run of film threat minus issue one. Yeah. Still. So, you know, Nick Zed and the cinema transgression, Richard Kern, all that stuff, like, it certainly was exciting or interesting on one level. Like, all yeah. the Richard Kern stuff is very, like, at that age of your life, like, compelling and sexually charged. But Nick Zed just felt like a, there's a level of cruelty that, and yeah. a lack of imagination for seeing any beauty anywhere that, like, I did not connect with. And so I was finding more, like, poetic moments and visuals and things that I was finding in the world and, and trying to shoot those and excited when I would mm-hmm. find kids that were maybe interesting rather than, like, putting a frog in a blender. So um, that, that was sort of what, you know, I was maybe like younger and less on heroin than, than that crowd. Yeah. Um, but I was coming up to New York at the time. Like the other thing about being in central New Jersey or South Jersey is that you've got Philadelphia and you've got Trenton, you've got New York city within like the ability to like hop on a bus and be just kind of, and be there. And so it was going up and hanging out in the lower East side. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff going on with shows. There was um, this, uh, Tompkins Square Park at that time was a place you could go kind of hang yeah, out. Did you ever, were you at the Breakdown Tompkins Square Park show? No. That's my favorite live yeah. video of all time. It was not at that one. <laughs> okay. Um, um, but there was, you know, there was like squat houses to the east of there by a couple blocks on between like maybe Avenue B and C or A and B um, that Tom Salmon and I would go, you know, craw- crawl up some ladders and then like, it was insane inside. There would just be like giant gaps in the floor that someone had laid down a ladder to walk over and you had to like take the bravery to like walk trust that you could that. get over this thing to get to the next ladder up to you know <laughs> in the dark with no electricity but once you were up there you'd meet a kid named Army who had left home who had notebooks full of great writing and poetry and you know there's just all this great stuff going on and in that pocket didn't feel as heroiny as other things that were you know it felt like 
kids who were just surviving and, and yeah. getting by and, and who were interesting. So did you, you know, like this before, I guess, things were as codified as now. Did yeah. you notice the difference in the scenes going to, like, a show in Philly? I guess people would travel yeah. around for shows, too. But yeah, because, like, you know, there's, like, there's was, stuff that was, to me, kind of, like, like, the stakes were so high in my mind. Like, it felt like I was, people were trying to not let me live. Yeah. You know, that I had no time for, like, goofballs at the dead milkman or like it, it felt like what the fuck are you doing like yeah. joking around while people are trying to not let me live yeah. like you know and so you know there are kids that were just into like like the kind of wacky zany thing. there's this kid uh brandon at my high school that was like you know oh, big lizard in my backyard and you know drawing pro-life <laughs> yeah stuff in the year the yearbook you know just like really yeah like, i don't know like weird. to be offensive or just i don't know i think he was into that stuff like okay. um so there was that that like just did not feel like what punk really yeah, meant or whatever, yeah. and then there's uh, things were desperate, and that yeah. there was this other element of like I'm going to go see whatever goofball stuff, you know. Um, it just was not yeah conducive with like yeah like well yeah and then there's you know <clears throat> yeah there's other things going on you know, like the you know there's black flag tapes and misfits tapes and minor threat tapes mm-hmm. being passed around mm-hmm. and and bands that are forming in that sort of lineage and playing yeah. like you know high school kids doing that that extension, that idea. And then there's all the New York kind of tough guy hardcore that I didn't really connect with either. The sort yeah. of, those bands are around and you go see them and be fine. But it was like, I, you know, I'm not trying to like, it's not your punk. Yeah. I'm not trying to be like a football dude smashing heads. <laughs> um, and that really was like the energy of a lot of that stuff. Yeah. There, well, yeah, certainly, I, I guess now it's, it's more intermixed, you know, like you can have like the sort of like anti-intellectual vibe of the band live, but then like there's like this sort of real deep poetic kind of like nihilism to the lyrics that they're trying to do. Like yeah. you can have your cake and eat it too a lot more now, I think. Yeah. There were bands, I guess, that they kind of like, but more on the West Coast, that kind of had a darker kind of vibe yeah. that that I guess would have sort of those moshy things. But yeah, you're right. It was, you know... So what were the what were, where did you eventually find like the music and scene that you kind of felt most comfortable with? There were uh, you know there were great shows happening at the Franklin Y of like kids yeah. like contemporaries of ours in Philadelphia. There were um, shows happening. There's like you know even like the metal places at the time would occasionally let teenagers and weirdo bands or punk bands play or get on yeah. the bill. There's a place called Bonnie Rocks in Atco, New Jersey. That you know it's probably where Metallica would have been playing in eighty three, eighty forty five. Yeah. Uh, and then it's kind of crossover too, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But they would they would be open to like occasionally letting you know one of our bands jump on the bill yeah. along with like speed metal stuff that was happening and and then you know Guns and Roses was a huge crossover where like they were acknowledged or accepted or enjoyed by skate kids of, and yeah. metal kids and punk kids and all that. And then they did, like talk about a punk lineage. Duff was in yeah. like so many amazing, yeah. unbelievable punk bands. And- and so even within, like, once the kids, like, gave a chance to that rather than just straight-up hair metal Bon Jovi stuff, it was like, all right, like, you know, like, you're, you're on a slightly better track yeah, now, like, but you still should fucking come see the replacements. My, my, uh, my, I remember my dad got me a Poison Open Up and Say Ah tape and, yeah. and Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. And it just, it felt really different. Like, I know, because yeah, I've seen the video for Welcome to the Jungle, and I know they had, and he had Axel has the teased-out hair in yeah. that, and I'm like, oh, maybe they are, like... <laughs> Poison, but I didn't really like Poison. But Guns N' Roses just had this like edge to it. Yeah. And then I heard One in a Million, and it bummed me out. Yeah. So, so disappointing. Hard. Yeah. It is crazy that that is a real record. Yeah. That charted, and you know, like, and I know people say shocking things now and, and things like that, but that that is a 
holy jeez, that... Yeah. And I know there's the defense that they get, that is given by, like, to the lyrics being like, oh, it's a narrative that I'm trying to tell, and... Jeez, those are a lot. It's a bummer that, like, when you finally get the world's attention cool. and have a chance to say what you want to say, like, that's what you put out. Yeah, like, you why know? would you... If I was in that situation, I'd be like, no, let's never reissue this. If I... Like, I would never want to be in the situation where I've said those things, but, like, let's never put this out again. Let's not remind people of this song. Um, but, it, so, but, but, yeah, so also you've got to remember that time. You've got, you know... The more radical term that happened, term that happened within hip hop. You've got everything going on with Public Enemy from Yo Bum the show, show onwards from like '87, and that was huge. Like that was maybe even more what we we're listening to. Yeah. So then. did you feel like that? Because I, 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 every time I read like a punk, uh, like you know, a spin piece on punk, there's yeah. always like the fact that they put like the Public Enemy record in there, and I love Public Enemy, but it's always I'm always like, I wonder if that's did you think that was as punk or is it the attitude that you felt was punk? Or yeah, absolutely felt like that. The energy and the confrontation yeah. and the, the density of the lyrics and all the world it was creating of its own felt exactly... Like, in like it wasn't like, oh, here's this other category. It was yeah. like, this is on and the I other guess, side of the Maxell tape as... As like, as... Oh, I guess at the time, like, yeah. you know, it was... Because like Chuck, Chuck D, like, didn't he... He would take on like weird bands. Like he, he asked us to open one time, yeah. you know? So there was totally. that kind of like aware, I guess, punk energy, punk awareness yeah. and stuff. And then didn't they do a tour? I'm trying to remember. It was like a tour. I thought they played... They did a lot of shows. You know, they did shows regionally with Anthrax. They yeah, had a, Anthrax, a show in Chicago yeah. with Sonic Youth and them that ended in a police riot. Oh, really? Yeah. Was that Would that be around Cool Thing? It was... Uh... Oh, man. I feel like it might have been pre-Cool Thing. Well, no, yeah, it would have been. Would yeah, have been yeah, that time. Okay. yeah. So, like, it, it, at which point did you, like, decide, like, you know, you're obviously surviving and that's yeah. the key to your existence at this point. When did you get to a point where you were able to or well enough to to kind of, like, figure out what was going to happen beyond just survival? Um, I, you know, I found some good supportive friends and, and people that would let me crash with them and... Mm-hmm. I was at uh, Catholic school during high school, and there were even like you know faculty or, or teachers that were looking out for me that I could crash with sometimes. Yeah. Um, I I also got into stuff that was more like you know less punk, more The Smiths, REM, other stuff that was like you know music culture going on at that time, and really connected with a lot of it, and and got deep into some of that. Which has like a real <clears throat> both those bands have definitely you know that is an extension of punk, and you know both cases right like. I would say so. Plenty of people would, you know, disagree. People would disagree, but, like, I think there's a real tangible link, you know, yeah. like, between punk bands, you know, like, obviously R.E.M. would play with yeah. all the ass and stuff, but, like, the Smiths, like, the nosebleeds, like, you yeah. know, and, and Slaughter and the Dogs, and there's all these, like, ties to, like, yeah. that world. Um, and I certainly, like, was, you know, someone who had a, a strong tolerance for non, non-dumbed down, non-regressive, non-like, <laughs> one, two, three, four, you know. Yeah. Um, was totally into the stuff that was like heading in those those other directions as well. Um, so I got deep into some of that stuff, and uh, Michael Stipe from REM had a, a film group at the time called 600 Film Corps that was giving grants to underground filmmakers. And they had sort of realized that there was this back door to get content on the air, that there were, you know, sort of mandates of how much time within the United States had to get given from the broadcasting spectrums to public service announcements. Mm-hmm. And then if you made really strong content in that format, that would end up getting aired on your local NBC affiliate, you know, several times a day. So they, they were actually doing this kind of stuff then. Yeah, so it's like, you know, you you can sell this much time to, like, yeah. commercials, and then you've got to, like, you know, do some sort two of minutes thing. a day has to be public service announcement type yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So 
by just like making content about progressive issues in that format and making these little 30 second or 15 second spots and then sending the tapes out to all the different broadcast affiliates, like these mm. things would end up on the air. So like Jim Cohen or Jim McKay or Catherine Diekman or these interesting like progressive artists and filmmakers that Michael was running into would get little grants and make these things and they would end up like running. You could see weird Jim Cohen imagery talking about like where trash goes. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, uh, when I was still a teenager, kind of helped give me some grants to like keep making films mm. and getting it uh, processed and, and looking stuff as giving and kind of giving notes and tapped me into his sort of like art and film culture that he had around him and was extremely nurturing and kind of helped get me down uh, with an artist named Chris Billheimer to Athens, Georgia, uh, when I was still probably like 17 years old or so. And there's a, a painter and filmmaker named James Herbert, who's sort of from the Stan Brackage experimental filmmaker yeah. lineage. He was an amazing artist and moved into his place. And, um, you know, I, I spent some time in a dorm as well, you know, yeah. but like, but, but like basically like ended up living in this great, great of old uh, Southern house and, and, you know, making artwork and uh, painting and film. And there, it, there's no film school there. There's no, like, you don't learn how to light an interview or oh, so you, there's nothing like that. It's so you just, never, did you ever go never, to film school? No, oh, so it's all. all, like, self-taught, <clears throat> yeah. like, on that side. Exactly. So just was making things with no training. Wow, okay. And then had these, like, artists who were nurturing. You know, there's, like, yeah, a, yeah. other students where you would go make a Super 8 film with, you know, with no I guess you're almost like apprenticing and mentoring yeah. with like these other artists. Too. Yeah, but it's it, there's nothing about lighting or, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just yeah. like, you know, other weirdos and kooks making stuff and yeah. <laughs> putting in a projector and watching it together and seeing what was exciting or not. Um, so that was just a great process and Athens was an incredibly creative time, at, you know, place to be and a lot of great stuff going on. And there was maybe a transition from sort of punk stuff to this sort of you know, indie rock or college radio thing that was going on at the time. The Athens scene, I yeah. guess, like Let's Active and Pylon and all those. Yeah, so Pylon had reformed and was was doing stuff again. So they were around and they were great. Michael Hufsky's an amazing guy. Um, I love that band. I'm so wonderful, yeah. Great band. Um, but there were all these sort of like bands that were maybe reacting against that sound or that like were worried about being associated with R.E.M. because they were from Athens, Athens. And so they were going like noisy, like Porn Orchard or yeah. the Jack Nuts or the Barbecue Killers or you know, five, eight or mercy land Dave Barbie's group at the time. So like more aggressive, yeah. like more fun noise, more stuff. like the noise rock kind yeah. of vibe, I guess at the time too. Um, and so that was, that was going on with people that are older than me. And then the younger kids were the ones that were showing up to kind of start all the elephant six collective. Like Jeff Magnum came in maybe in 93 from Ruston, Louisiana mm-hmm. and, uh, Bill Doss and, you know, those guys were around and playing at, you know, burrito restaurants and just doing, Circulatory system. Building the scene. Yeah, kind of building the scene, synthetic flying machine. So pre-Neutral Milk Hotel stuff that these guys are doing that was extremely, like, from the get-go, like, so exciting and realizing, like, this really feels like the sort of Van Morrison or some moments of John Lennon visionary channel for songs coming through him that, you know, like, this, and started filming everything that Jeff was doing at that time. So you you were, like, right at the start of Neutral Milk Hotel, kind of, like, there and, and part of that. And kind of, like, filming and documenting all that and... Also, like, from, like, 91, 92 onwards, uh, with the cameras and stuff, started, like, jumping in the van with bands like Pavement yeah. and, you know, like, going on the road and shooting footage. And, yeah. and there's another great, kind of great band from Athens at that time called Five Eight that were like, a three-piece bass guitar drums, you know, sounded kind of like Crazy Horse or Husker Du. Okay. Um, and 
toured the country with them extensively and they would just kind of build these routes like leaving hitting like weird places in the south and then sometimes going for you know going across the whole country when they could when you're filming this footage is it just like is the goal to like do an art film with it or is no the goal is like like this needs to get documented and it's not going to end up as long as like tonight belongs to Michelob ads are happening with Eric Clapton like (laughs) this stuff is getting like again like suffocated or drowned or snuffed out and like it's up to me to like film this first did you have like a Spugazi show because it's not otherwise going to get film you know but did you have like a like because now if someone was to say I'm going to start filming shows the the ultimate end result is very obvious where it's going to go the internet but yeah. like did you have any idea of what exhibition or any sort no, of no like the best that? that I could do would be to like make a VHS tub, dub and, and hand it to Thurston when Sonic Youth came through town, came through town like, yeah. you know that was about the extent of what you I was projecting stuff I was showing stuff uh, at the 40 Watt Club in a place called the Downstairs in Athens um, I started screening films Michael Lovsky and I started a thing called Flickr mm-hmm. where we would do like you know monthly screenings of, of Super 8 film but there's like a no video role for that where we were like purists about it having to be like shot on film and projected yeah. on film but so the, the stuff I was shooting on like you know hiatus or camcorders of like live performances of bands just felt like it was important to me to document it I would Sorry. I would listen to that or watch that I would put it on at home and yeah. you know, that would be you know a 45 minute super chunk set would yeah. I would watch it again and again were you were you tape trading because like we would there's a little bit of that but I was not late but we're late I would say later yeah. yeah so it's just sort of like on my own kind of arch- archiving stuff and um you know getting a better eye or better sense of like intuition of like okay now Laura Balance is going to step forward and do this on the you know yeah getting a sense of like yeah. how to cover things with well, a single camera in real time as they unfolded did you know John from being going to shows in Philly, it's I don't like think we ever. Cro- I don't think that I knew him in Philly. And again, not to be. I mean, he's an amazing guy and a genius. But like, if I had known him at the time, I probably would have been like, "Oh, he's in psychotic goofball." Norman, which yeah, goofy, yeah. Goofy, you know, like I had less time for. Yeah, the stakes were too high. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but I, I certainly adore him. And, yeah, you know. Uh, so I guess I was filming Super Chum before he was drumming, but then continued on once he was in the band. Were you filming when they were just? Chubby. I believe so, because they came down to Athens. Like, they yeah. were, you know... I guess it would have been pretty local. Yeah. For, like, uh, area. It wasn't that far of a stretch for them to... Yeah, you know. drive down. Um, at least that's how I remember it. And then, there, you know, there like, people were putting on weird shows and house shows, and so, like, weirdo bands from the Northwest would come down and mm-hmm. just, like, play a train station and in Athens. You know, yeah. it, it was a, a mythical place well, to Athens go. Athens is, like, the spot. Like, yeah. A, a, you know, like... You wanted to go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you were also isolated and cut off. Like, there was no national... You know, like, you weren't... It was a, it's a, a weird game. little yeah pocket, and it's weird because like I, I don't think I've ever played there. Like we do Atlanta, yeah, but we just and, and it's like it's such a like Forty Watt Club yeah. is still a legendary club that's there, and I, I just don't think we've ever played there. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think now, and I'm of course going to be like an idiot again and be like, oh, <laughs> I played there and had Five an amazing times. time. Like, and it was like, like the, the best venue yeah. of my night, uh, but but still, I don't think I have. But like yeah, it's, it's and it's funny because I guess. Did, did, you, did you feel that scene kind of dry up at any point? Because like no, because always like some new variation would happen, or yeah. some, you know, every year there's a bunch of eighteen year old kids showing up who Doing something are interested and in, invent something new, and there's always fun stuff going on. Um, there's a band called Shade right now that are great. Yeah, no, I don't mean like there's yeah. like nothing, but did, like there was like that moment where it was like pre Seattle, it was yeah. like the hub, yeah, and stuff. Like, did you feel like were you? You were still there, obviously, when that kind of felt like it was because I was like ninety. Yeah, kind of was, no, it, it felt exciting and, and great and even if things weren't like if Five Eight wasn't on the cover of Spin Magazine yeah, they'd don't still care. they're an yeah, amazing band yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know things were really rewarding exciting and you could make art and people would go see it and you could paint and then ship, you know, show it at the downstairs you know there's just a great supportive yeah. place you get away with spoken word yeah <laughs> um, 
So I loved it, but uh, it also, when you go on tour with these bands, like it was sort of the commercialization of that indie rock thing started happening at that time, where basically, um, you know, Jane's Addiction broke through and we're uniting metalheads and classic rock dudes and Zeppelin people and punks by, you know... Yeah, by just hitting all those things. And uh, then when Nirvana... And even before Nirvana, like, I think people... There were things that kind of got relatively large before Nirvana. Like, you know... Pixie. Yeah, people were... They were filling large venues, and so were, like, Soundgarden and, you know... But it's kind of like Canadian whack... Whack. Canadian rap pre-Drake. Yeah. You know, where it's like... It seemed like... Well, they were were big artists, but then it's like... You know, when Nirvana comes, it just all seems so small by comparison. And Nirvana was so significant and so important to me and, and just transcendently affected me that... Were you into like? Did you were you into Bleach? And oh like, yeah, I mean, like the whole way through. And then like yeah. knowing like when they did that Sliver Seven Inch and like the combination of the artwork and the perfection of that song, yeah. like it felt like this like something's going on here. This is going to click. Yeah, this is going to click. Even that blue EP that came out, like there was just there was a build to it in the photography yeah. and the choices they're making and the way that they're approaching songs and the live shows that they're doing at that time. You you did feel this trajectory that like you know. This is special. This is different than what's happening with Soundgarden. Did you or, film? Did you? Film? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Did, yeah. And uh, then I put together like the box set. The box and, set yeah. is on the box set's foot of your footage. That's yeah. right. Because I have that box set too. Um, so they were incredibly important and yeah. just meant the world to me. And you know, at that time, and, and you felt like sometimes within culture, you find or recognize people that have maybe been through similar experiences or feelings that you have, and that you connect with them. And like that was something I really locked in with with Kurt. That it felt like there were some shared experiences there. And, um, so that band meant the world to me and being, in, you know, being involved with them is one of the things that I'm glad before I eventually die that, that happened. And that yeah. it was part of my time on yeah. this planet. Um, so they, you know, they came through Athens, they came through Atlanta. They were great. Other people recognized it too. Like, you know, I'm my friend, Chris Bilheimer, this artist that was looking out for me, like I'm sure one of the best live things he ever saw was watching them there at the 40 watt. The, the Greg, in Atlanta, who's like filming shows there, like made a point to go, like really do a good job filming whenever yeah. Nirvana came through there. You know, people were uh, picking up on it or yeah. cognizant that this was special. Um, you know, like you can have fun at a Fishbone show, but like the Nirvana show, like get it right. Like yeah. this is, you know, recorded. Special <laughs> yeah. Or... So it was great. It was exciting. I was I was happy to see the rest of the world catch on and get excited and like uh, it was so a vindicate- that, like I didn't taking my no, music. I wanted it I wanted like all the numbskulls who were still dragging their poison liquid the cat dragged in cassette like yeah. to like throw that out the car window and like just listen to come as you are yeah. <laughs> like I wanted that uh, I thought it was sort of like a shift in what would end up on the radio or power you know it felt like okay maybe we don't have to have another the night belongs to Michelob <laughs> ad if, if this can be what <laughs> If this yeah. can be, if this can yeah. hit. So, I, uh, and I, there were so many rumors pre-internet about, like, what this, the next moves were, what was happening. Mm-hmm. Like, because, like, immediately when you saw the other major labels, like, shift and, and manufacture, remarket things that they had to go more in that Nirvana trajectory. And, like, I resented Pearl Jam so much. Yeah. <laughs> like, it felt so fucked that, like, these totally hooked up guys that had, like, huge articles, you know, before they'd even put, you know, just, yeah. they were, like, groomed and, and rigged to be this sort of, like, dude bro metal thing, and then it's like, oh, oh, oh this Nirvana, okay, now, we're, no, we're also, like, this guy used to be in a punk band, like, you know, yeah. the, yeah. the sort of, like, reshifting of how they're being marketed right at that launch was such a bummer, and then they had that whole machine behind them, and that, 
that like lunkhead drummer dude. It's everything about them was so repulsive. But you know, like Eddie Vedder seemed like a decent guy, yeah, or yeah. that like but whatever he was going through was it was a similar like recognition. But like, why choose these numbskulls to be? You know, so it felt so there was a rumor going around that like. When they were coming through and touring, like they were going to come play like whatever student thing, yeah. you know, outdoor swimming pool thing in the University of Georgia. That Nirvana were driving around in a van and showing up in every city that Pearl Jam played on that tour <laughs> and doing like house shows or punk shows to draw the cool kids away from the Pearl Jam show. And we were so excited about that idea. And like we were like, all right, like where, where, like has anyone Let's seen the van show up? Like, you know, like where, yeah, where are they doing this? And it's it turned out not to be true, but it was like such a great idea, and it felt like that's what should be happening. They're like it's it's like the Beatles, Rolling Stones, it Clash, Sex Pistols. Yeah. it's like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, like a, a real divide. You can see because, yeah. like, yeah, like I I I remember just being like, there's something that's not, and and I got like that music was before I was even yeah. aware necessarily. Of, I knew it was wear punk, but like, yeah, it just didn't feel like Nirvana felt. Yeah. And, you know, again, like, Eddie Vedder's a great guy. Yeah, like, I, and I'm sure, like, and I, I love Green River, and I love direct, uh, direct diction, direct, the, the um, Jeff Armand's band from, uh, from um, God, Missouri or something, anywhere, no, Montana. Montana. Yeah. And, uh, like, I think those bands are awesome and, and, and everything like that. But, yeah, it's just. <laughs> At the time, it felt, again, like, this is, like, a dangerous Diversion away from what what looked like a singular thing that was happening culturally, yeah. and now it's getting like because they were already like I'm sure he was already doing like fronting as Jim Morrison for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions for like Rayman Zarek's version of the you know like yeah. they were so hooked up in that world it was like ah yeah. oh. and like Rayman Zarek's a fucking ghoul like he lived off the corpse of Jim Morrison for decades and like you know just yeah it's such a grotesque self indulgent side to all that stuff that was like a complete bummer to me as a, you know, well, I guess that for you also as someone teenager. That, yeah. Well, someone that you hate that hated that adult. Yeah. Hippie holdover. Exactly. So yeah. Much that, yeah. That, that was an extension of that. Yeah. Is there, are there any bands from that period that you, you've able to go back and rediscover and be like, ah, this isn't so bad. I mean, I guess I got into Sid Barrett stuff early on and like, oh, yeah, that, yes, I was always fine weird. with, but like, I still can't, I, I just like something triggers like too much in reaction. me. Yeah. So, uh, you're, when did you did you leave Athens? When did you actually like apart from getting in the vans? Obviously, yeah. I guess I started exploring other parts of the country while touring with bands from the early '90s onwards. And I would say, like in '92, went to Portland, Oregon, and just connected with it and felt like, mm-hmm. okay, this place feels right. This place is fucked up. This I could hide here. Um, there were great bands. There was uh, Jody Bliley from the band Hazel was like a. I, I sort of had people I'd really connect with or respond to that felt like signifiers or walking saints or people that were like there's some recognition of like what my life experience had been and what they looked like they were dealing with or had been through um and so really connected with like her in portland and and loved what she was doing with her band hazel and then team dresh when she put that together Mm -hmm. um elliot smith just like characters that you knew like this is you know this is what i'm want to see while i relate to these people so I started going back and forth to Portland and it was a cheap enough place at the time. And Athens is so cheap that like, I'm not, you know, I'm sure there are times that Jim Herbert wasn't really even charging me rent, you know, just, yeah. you'd have a room in this crazy Gothic Southern house with like <laughs> painters and characters and photographers. And you could like listen to music and walk down the hall and look at someone working on a new painting. It was just yeah. it was such a magical experience yeah. and, uh, Kudzu growing over everything. And, um, you know, but like the cost of living was so low in both places that you could go back and forth and get a room in, in a house in Portland and a group house and just make it work. So it's a weird bi-coastal thing that was not the traditional New York LA mm-hmm. axis, but rather to like underground 
areas. Well, it's like Washington, D.C. And Olympia, and Olympia yeah. had that kind of kinship, I guess. Yeah. So uh, after I moved out of Jim Herbert's house, I, I moved into a, a warehouse building that he had that was sort of a former high school gymnasium, and then the classes where they would teach things like health, like yeah. the auxiliary classes, with um, two great artists, Chris Pilheimer and, and Dan Donahue. And we would just, like, you know, have bands play and put on shows and make artwork and put on events and, and stuff there. And it was incredibly cheap. Like, it might have been, like, $100 a month to have this huge, great space that no one noticed was there. It's almost like this, it's kind of like pricing itself out of these cities now. Like, you could not no, you <laughs> yeah. find that in Portland or... And, you know, a lot of that goes to Jim being incredibly supportive of, yeah. of artists and uh, and just the, the feeling at that place that you weren't being a mercenary about stuff. You weren't trying to be predatory. You were just mm-hmm. you know, enabling other culture to exist and mm-hmm. get spawned. So, you know, similarly, you get a room in a group house in Portland for not much money and just kind of go back and forth. Um, so that's what I was doing. And then kind of taking... Just like hitch rides on tours back and forth? Yeah, hitch rides on tours or, or you know, yeah. Delta is uh, hubbed out of Atlanta. And so there's like oh, inexpensive direct flights, flights yeah. you know, back and forth as well. And there's no sales tax in... Oregon, and there's really low cost on stuff of, of living in mm-hmm. Athens. You know, there were very cheap places to kind of get by. Yeah. So, um, you know, would travel with me. And then also started, like, from the early 90s onwards, like, there was a, a move, I think, when My Bloody Valentine came through, and they were doing projections behind them, and they had, like, maybe Dinosaur, you know, same kind of people around yeah. them as, like, Dinosaur Jr. and Mercury Rev. They just started, like, having me, you know, tag along or help run projectors or make content to put on screens and run behind them. And, uh, and then film stuff. It became a way to like, without ever having gone to film school or, or try to become like a music video director, which is what people were doing at that time yeah. for that sort of thing, just like would work with bands or make things or whatever. And, you know, again, like when REM would just need to do some like background projections for a tour or award acceptance speech or whatever, like they were great about like helping us yeah. to, to get a chance to make stuff. And then toured extensively when like REM and Sonic Youth did shows in 95, uh, Michael had his own bus and kind of took me out to go travel around and I made all the stuff they were projecting behind them during certain songs. Okay. Um, and again, like other people that, that I adored, been, like, I guess that's by that point you were kind of used to it, but that it's still like to have your work seen by that. It was insane. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. And it was such a, you know, there were certain songs that I really connected with and, and deliberately made stuff. And it, the footage was a lot of like other runaway kids and, and teenagers in parking mm-hmm. lots and laundromats and gas stations. And, uh, I traveled the country shooting it and was going to the places I was like fixated or obsessed with, like, Louisville, Kentucky, like going up there chasing ghosts of the stories about the guys in Slint, and then like also shooting the you know, the current teenagers yeah. and, and making these things to project. Um, so to go see that projected like at Madison Square Garden with the song country feedback and like they're running multiple screens of all the footage and you know overlapping. It's, insane, yeah. it's just yeah, and then the band's actually like kind of playing to it and altering the timing and stuff in cadence with what's happening with the visuals that um, like Michael would turn and face the screens to watch them during that song. But it was this incredibly validating and, you know, inspiring, exciting thing. And then you'd go out afterwards, and it's like Lou Reed and Patti Smith coming up yeah. to be like, that was beautiful, you know. So you felt like, fuck everybody that wanted me dead. Like, you know, I, you know. This is it. This like, is, I yeah. found my space. Yeah. Uh, and then you just even, like, they were such good people in the, the world around them. Like, you were, you know, from early on in the 90s, like, Ian MacKay and Jem Cohen, like, the people around Michael were good mm-hmm. punk character people to learn from and, and get a sense of how to operate in the world what sort of choices to make what integrity to kind of build into yourself so you know you're obviously kind of living in two worlds where you're screening stuff in smaller art spaces yeah. and then also getting this thing and now your work 
is mass viewed. Was there like ever a conflict internally about like? Yeah, there were times that you had to turn down things. Like I, I, I just this story came up. I've been doing some stuff recently with a, a band, Screaming Females from New Jersey. Yeah, and Marissa, awesome who's band. younger than me, is uh, you know, she grew up like liking the Smashing Pumpkins and stuff like that. And it reminded me of the story that I completely like, blocked out or forgotten about. That you know, there's a window probably like whenever they were doing stuff in '94. Yeah, you know that uh, that they asked about me making stuff to project behind them or work with them and. Um, I'd like that record Gish when it came out, you know, uh, the drum sounds are really cool, but you were starting to hear stories about Billy Corgan being a complete creep or whatever. And then, uh, like when I would go up and down the East coast, I would stay at the Ian's house, the sort of the, you know, the, the house, the discord house that's on the the famous. Yeah. That's where I would crash during the, the drives. And, um, so I went and had all my cameras and like, you know, parked my beat up car and, and went to go up to the bedroom and crash out. And he was like, this is great. Great to see you. And like, you know, traded some stories. He's like, so what are you, what are you, where are you headed to go do? And I was like, I'm going to go like meet this band, the Smashing Pumpkins. They want me to like make stuff to project behind them. And he just kind of sat me down and was like, man, what are you doing? Like, you know, like you make this work. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want that to be like what you spent your time with? Like you, you're only going to have so many images in your mind. Why would you burn a bunch of those with that band? Like, what do you yeah. get out of that? And I was like, yeah, like, yeah, but it, me, I didn't you have... You a literal Ian MacKay that sits on every punk's shoulder <laughs> yeah. in front of you. Yeah. And, it, and it's like, yeah, but, like, at the time, it was like, well, I didn't I didn't have a job. Yeah, it was no, like, you know, it's like, no. oh, here's this pile of money to go make yeah. something. I, I, you know. I believe me, I understand, I think, a lot more than Ian does. Yeah. <laughs> but so it really, like, sank in, and it was like, yeah, like, what am I doing? And, yeah. and I realized, like, maybe I just will not... Maybe I'll find some way to, like, not take that and just keep yeah. making other weird stuff and get by and not pay, you know, like you know, yeah. whatever sacrifices you make, but like, then you're not the guy that did the stuff for the smash <laughs> in 94. So, uh, I think I went and saw them play their show and, and it was a bummer. Like it was watching like what they're up to at that time and the, the vibe and the band, you know, it just felt like, yeah, these aren't, I don't recognize the same thing With here R- that R- I get R- out of Nirvana and R.M. R- 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 and Elliot Smith and Jody Bliley and you know like yeah like, yeah this is a different thing and there's an even like more horrific thing we're talking about. yeah and there was an even more horrific thing before that where uh, I the band Mercury Rev were who were not really a real band like they they had I didn't know it at the time basically like they were this recording project that Dave Friedman had done and yeah. then all the weirdos at the campus he, he put this person to play flute on a song and this person to do spoken word but like they didn't all really know each other they weren't yeah. like a real functional band. And then, like, in the post-Nirvana signing fringe, because, like, that record had been pressed by Rough Trade in England right around the time that, like, Rough Trade in the U.S., like, went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Like, I think in boxes there were, like, shrink-wrapped copies of this record ready to go that it was all, like, a weird signing story. Like, the, the tape was being passed around as a way for Dave Furman to get production work. It got misunderstood as being, a you know, a an demo. active band, you yeah. know. And then it's like, this is great. Let's put this out. And then he had to, like, put bring together. the people together to, like, oh, remember, like, you recorded a thing for my thing. You know, like... Can you come so they were they got signed to like Columbia Sony Records in the post Nirvana alternative rock era. And uh I didn't know it, I was like young and they basically like asked if I would like project stuff behind them while they did like a Lollapalooza tour in ninety three. Yeah. And I you know, it's like, yeah, that sounds great. I might have been like twenty years old at the time. And uh asked for like some small amount of like per diem to go do this whole thing. <laughs> and then Realize, like, wait, they're playing, like, outdoors in Denver, Colorado at 2 in the afternoon. Like, there's no way to see a movie. Yeah. I'm super right there. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't physically work. But because of what they're doing is just, like, embezzling money out of their label is, like, tour advances and tour support, they're like, well, just come film instead. Or, you know, it was a way of them, like, siphoning off some pile of money from the label 
to get like for themselves yeah. to divide up like as an advance. So, so I, I traveled the country <laughs> like not knowing what I got myself into, and that that was like what the dynamic was. And they're completely dysfunctional. And there's you're like committed heroin. to it, yeah, it's like point. all this stuff. But so you would get to like the Northwest and like find Kill Sybil or Patty Schemmel drumming, and yeah. the, you know, like okay, this is these are the the things I want to connect with. So yeah, so like at that, at, you know, so you were finding stuff to to where you could, yeah. exp- you know, exhibit your work and get out there. Yeah. But like, you know, there is a point where you start making other stuff that isn't necessarily music, right? Like, you yeah, I've, you know, I've directed like uh, a lot of documentaries, a lot of um, yeah films, so a lot of comedy stuff. But there was a period of time where I would, you know, direct music videos for bands or yeah, you just commercials or things like, and that. things like that. Yeah, it, it's it's it, it's it's like is it. Was it, like, do you still find your personal art to do? Yeah, because I guess, like, the stuff that's, like, more personal music-related is, like, one side of things. And then just by a weird fluke, I ended up shooting the Jackass stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, through Spike Jones, who was, like, a, a great supportive person that kind of spotted me and brought me out to L.A. to, to do stuff with him in the mid-'90s. Uh, maybe we met through Sonic Youth or something, I would imagine. Yeah, because he shot Dirty. Yeah. The, the, or 100% the skate stuff, right? Yeah. Um, Can we stop for one yeah, second? Yeah, of I just want to double-check because it's getting a weird... Spike was great and started bringing me out to kind of help work on stuff or shoot with him or figure out ways to approach things and yeah. that was incredibly rewarding and so through that you know ended up working on some feature films and commercials and weird things in that world um, but that felt different for, I mean I was good at that but that was different from the sort of personal yeah. work that I was doing and then just as a fluke like when he kind of helped he you know, created that show Jackass with yeah. his friends Johnny Knoxville and Jeff Tremaine um, would you, shoot did you stuff know Big Brother magazine at yeah. all? Like you were familiar with that. Yeah. Like, were you involved in the skate scene? Probably? I don't want to overstate my involvement in the skate scene. No, I, but, like but, I, I, you know, I certainly like had a board and skated on streets kind of, in in Alabama, but I was yeah. not in any way like shredding bulls like the you know yeah. the real people were. And I think there was an assumption that I could like hang or shoot skate stuff, but like I wasn't really that uh, nimble on a skateboard to like shoot great stuff right while along. skating. You yeah, know? so. But I was good at the sort of the personality of getting people to open up or be candid or be yeah. funny to camera. So they kind of like would use me in Jackass stuff as a way of uh, if they knew they had like a, a higher stakes shoot, like if we were doing Brad Pitt or uh, effects makeup of Knoxville's an old man and needed to not blow it, like yeah. they would bring me in to kind of yeah. like have to additional one coverage. And, it. Uh, that sounds dickish too. I like to to get additional coverage and make no, sure that yeah, yeah, yeah like I don't want to yeah. But like basically, like if they were worried about like I don't, we don't want to not have the Brad. Yeah, you want to have a second yeah. camera on um, everything. And make so sure it's good. shot some of that stuff for the TV show, and then when it was time to do that first movie, and no one believed that it could be a movie, or like why would anyone watch this for yeah. 90 minutes, or whatever. The idea was that maybe if I went and shot sort of a documentary side of like conversations and the prep and like what happens afterwards and how this all works, that that would like stitch the film together and yeah. make it work. And then it ended up being that like. We didn't need as much explanation as we thought we might before we... When, once you start watching those things cut together, like, it's just fun and it all makes sense. Yeah, and you don't need, like, a narrative structure. And It's almost like the, the pre-YouTube supercut yeah. of just stunts. Yeah. But, um, but uh, it, it flows really good. Like, a narrative, there's a narrative kind of flow to that yeah. movie, too. And so, you know, Dimitri Eliasovich, the main DP for that stuff, is great. And I just had a good time with those guys, like, shooting and jumping into that world. And again, I don't come from, like, a extreme sports action bro dude yeah that's what I was going to say because like you know I like I'm not that I said I misread you but I think a lot of people would assume especially because like you know and just the types of artists that lately you've been working with that that's more the world you come from but it's like like I, like I was like, I don't know what I expected you to say your first interaction was, but I didn't expect you to recite a Patti Smith poem. Yeah. No, that was definitely, like, that's the weird conflict in my, what people's perception of me is now, is it, like, really come from this sort of, like, poetic background. Yeah. And then it was funny to the jackass guys that, like, oh, here's, you know, 
this guy that's like trying to listen to a team dress tape on the <laughs> van ride is like, <laughs> but like uh, Aaron's from Portland. Uh, Nick Minville. Let's not make him. Okay, okay. <laughs> He's from like a goofy subject. Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> the area yeah. um, and stuff like that. Was he like at all involved? In, well, no, actually, I, I've met Aaron enough to know that there's no way he was going to Team Trash concerts. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, but Knoxville is a genuine, smart, sharp yeah. who was like totally fluent in punk culture and, you know, he knows what's up. Well, like, like, Ryan was a punk yeah, dude too, for like, sure. Yeah, they were like there were that connection yeah. to that kind of stuff. Too. Definitely, and Jeff Tremaine, like a lot. You know, the choices. You know, it's all this kind of like SST. Yeah, bad brains yeah. using the Minutemen as a theme. Oh, the like music, they're from yeah, that. like that's yeah. You know why I gravitated to that show? Well, I was a big, yeah. I, I knew Big Brother. I was a fan of Big Brother, but like you know, like oh Minutemen, like you kind of yeah. like you you saw the signpost to know that it was cool. yeah, definitely. Um, so going from like I guess that was like. Was that what would you consider like your, your your breakthrough to kind of like a more mainstream kind of audience? Like I guess that would have been it. Right? That would have been it. Like you so know, you were, I was working movie. on stuff that yeah. That, that, again, that was like that was yeah. That was not on purpose. That was no. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I was trying to stay kind of hidden. Or is is I wouldn't do interviews for the longest time. I wouldn't appear in photos. I it was like trying to negate myself from being any attention for most of the '90s and sort of mm-hmm. like. And then sometimes it'd be funny because like there'd be magazine articles that come out and they would refer to like you know, as Nirvana, whatever, like an unseen camera quietly lingers in the back. And it'd be like, now I kind of wish like, Oh, I like, maybe it should have said, you know, Lance Banks yeah. is filming or whatever. Yeah. You know, there was like, too many of those things that happened in, in a, in a funny way. Well, it's funny, but at the time, that's what I was going Well, there's for. certain people that document scenes that are so like the first one to be like, I was yeah, this yeah, guy. Yeah. I'm that dude that took that. Yeah. Thing. I never felt the need to insert myself. To validate that way. it yeah. that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the the kind of like the first like where I would just get recognized from people on the street was definitely once the Jackass films came yeah. out, and again like was trying to be not in those movies, but uh, I think they liked the humor of this you know, Jem Cohen type yeah person that was like <laughs> reacting to yeah, it. like reacting to like Steve-O's discharges. So when you when when it comes down to like you know working with artists now and stuff like that is that something that you kind of like you probably get to pick it obviously pick and choose at this point who yeah. you work with and is it like is it something you find yourself do you have to respond to the work that they do or is it is it more like I think I can see a visual for what they're doing yeah it's kind of I would say that sometimes I've wanted to like try things or push myself to do things that aren't really my aesthetic but that like I see something among them mm-hmm. that seems interesting like I've, I've done a bunch of work with um, like Earl Sweatshirt uh, Sid the Kid the Frank Ocean, Tyler, the people from Odd Future. And at first, that was hard to explain to people. Like, I met and knew them in the context. I was making a film about uh, underground culture on Fairfax Avenue. There's a family bookstore, which is this great art bookstore. Yeah. Is is it, like, the guy from Fucked? Or no, like, some street work? Uh, Kramer's Ergot and just some really good people that are sort of, like, an underground publishing and and art and comics that are there that run this great bookstore. And it's become the street that, like, was a sort of a traditional Jewish neighborhood that's now become, like, street where, you know, it's like where Supreme has a yeah, store and all yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but at the time I was feeling that transition, you know, it was like an art enclave, weird performances were going on, you know, music, weirdo things were happening. And was filming that, and, like, in the background of that documentary, you've got these, like, 14, 15-year-old kids, like, skating and doing crazy stuff and being really, like charismatic and funny and weirdos. And Do they like, recognize you from Jackass? Yeah. And so there's some like, like, hey, yeah. like you're the guy from Jackass. Yeah. And, uh, and then just 
realized that like there are some weird personalities here and they all these great names like Tyler the Creator yeah. Earl Sweatshirt and you know and it was like wow like what's this subculture what's going on here like sort of black skateboarding art- artist weirdos mm-hmm. you know listening to Joy Division you know mm-hmm. it was like this is this is interesting so that was sort of like I don't know like late 2000s um, and started shooting footage with them and then Nick Weidenfeld who does like you know was doing adult swim at the time like also connected with them and was like excited about like what do we do with this energy and these weirdo kids and then like yeah. Earl kind of got sent off around that time. Um, but, like, Sid was fascinating. The work she was doing and knowing she was this, like, lesbian teenager making these records. Yeah. It was like, there was all these layers of nuance and, like, shape. Yeah, and it's, it's a fascinating like, That's it. the thing is, like, even no matter how your take on, you know, the stuff that gets put out, yeah. it's, it's a fascinating group to look at. Yeah. Like, there's just so many dynamics where it's not... You can't dismiss it on any level because there's other things at play. Yeah, so knowing that stuff before other people kind of were allowed to know it like there was reasons for me to kind of get excited or want to film or keep documenting like what was going on with this contingent and then but on the sort of like when it's just like Tyler the Creator's Twitter feed and you're like this is repulsive <laughs> yeah. that that it, people were like what are you doing or you know why are you spending time down yeah. there filming them or whatever and then it's like you know you don't want to out people before they're you know but, but yeah. like, there were there were complicated there were things, things going on going on that were like I was drawn to to kind of like be the one documenting and film and build an archive of. I would not want to be staying at the Discord house though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Having to explain that to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we did that show, Loiter Squad. We did yeah. a bunch of documentary stuff over the years. Um, yeah, so there's there's that side of things. And I, I've developed a mind, like, I, again, I never went to film school, never did like proper training, but like know how to put together a TV show, know how to put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, comedy events or things like that now, and have had a good time doing that. Directing a lot of comedy stuff lately, um, and that's rewarding to kind of like go into some other field or branch of things. But then also to kind of keep making music work, or you know, go do personal films. Like I, I put out a film about the band Slint that I was working yeah. on for you know most of the past twenty odd years. Well, you're saying you're going down there and filming it way back when. Yeah. So that's like that. That must be like the passion project. Yeah, for sure. Like that was just like a, a film that I kind of willed into being. Uh, over the course of several decades. Are there any other bands that you have like that footage of? That yeah, like, there's a lot of things like that that I don't we haven't mean to put like, out. Like, tell me what yeah. projects are in the works. You know, like I, I filmed everything with Jeff Mangum while he was in Athens and yeah. putting together this record. We were housemates. Once I left the uh, the kind of school building, I moved into the house with Jeff and the rest of Nutrimo Cotel when they were kind of putting together uh, stuff around in the airplane over the sea. And then the time period after that when he kind of like started going into seclusion mm-hmm. um, and was you know, kind of around for all that and have footage and just haven't figured out a way that he'd be comfortable, like, showing or putting it out, but sort of have those archives. And then went on tour, like, also responded to Arcade Fire in 2004 when they put out Funeral, and they had me jump in the van and just kind of went and documented everything that was going on. So there's all the footage. Were you there when they burnt Richard? There's footage of that, yeah. Yeah, because that came up on the podcast. Yeah, um, there's... You know, David Bowie walking in the room and meeting them for the first time, David Byrne coming in and biking up to the show and then working on an arrangement yeah. of Naive Melody and playing that. You know, it's all this, like, wow. stuff as it yeah. unfolds in real time. And, you know, very smartly so at the end of that tour when we cut stuff together and looked at it, it felt like this is really cool, but, man, Hold how up. yeah, how incredibly self-indulgent would it be for a band to put out, like, a 90-minute yeah. documentary about their first record, like, four months later, you know? So we just sort of, like, ditched that and then... Uh, trying to figure out if it makes sense to put it out do at some point or do something with it. But So that exists. Um, there's been, like, you know, the other things like that where I've just been interested in someone and sort of, like, built an archive of footage. At the moment, I'm shooting a lot with that band Screaming Females mm-hmm. and uh, was inspired. Like, they... There's some connection there, something like some recognition like we talked about earlier. Yeah. And 
they came through um, the Milestone, which is like a long-running punk yep. venue in North Carolina. North Carolina, absolutely. It might be one of the longest continuous-running venues for that world. It's, it's yeah, like, like there's not too many of those left. Yeah. You know, like CB's obviously gone. And, and So basically, when we shot the film Bad Grandpa, we had to be really yeah. low-key. We were going to a lot of places people would not expect a hidden camera movie to be filmed. A lot yeah. of, you know, Gary, Indiana, um, different parts of North and South Carolina. And shooting footage and trying to not let anybody know that you were in town doing this because yeah. like it ruins the effect of people yeah. you know are looking, looking out for it, it. Yeah. Um, so I would at night again like with those guys like they you know they might go to Buffalo Wild Wings and drink or whatever and watch an NBA game and it's like oh, that's not my scene I'm, you know yeah. I would head over and go find like oh man like screaming females are playing at the milestone and just kind of head over there alone and um couldn't tell them what I was doing. You know, it's like you're not. It's like, yeah. well, what are you doing in, in North Carolina? Where, you know, where's Corin? Is, is here Slater Kinney here? Jangles. Yeah, and it's like, uh, you know, you can't really say. And then uh, they came back to Portland on this recent tour and realized that like there's just some connection there where we started shooting yeah. stuff and it jumped in the van with them across the deep south. And there was a lot of places I'd gone with like Pavement, Nirvana, Sonic Youth in the early '90s, five eight that. You go back now and things are better. Like the, yeah. in Birmingham, Alabama, there's a, a record store and there's like queer kids and more of a mixed audience yeah. and like more races represented at this show than there would have been at a super chunk show in 91. You know, like that mm-hmm. there were things of like, you know, words gotten out, there's cultures being built, communities coming together yeah. in a better way now because of the internet or access information or just like things getting easier on people. I think it's also like, you know, the stuff we've been probably talking about too, like, you know, there's these little, you know, mainstream kind of like, Science. Yeah. It's okay. You know, yeah. you're just in a small town. And it was so inspiring to me. Like we, they went and played like a place in uh, Delta College, and it's either Cle- I think it's Cleveland, Mississippi, or Cincinnati. I think it's Cleveland, Mississippi. Okay. And it's just in the middle of nowhere. And like they're, this band is in a van. They're making a point to go play to whatever kids are going to come out. Yeah. It's a cheap all ages show. And they really they read the book Our Band Could Be Your Life and like bought into it and like. They're on board. They're, you know, because, like, my sense of the world, and I am glad to see that I'm slightly wrong, was that, like, too much of it of, like, bands that are active now are, like, we're playing at the Vitamin Water stage, at the Fader Ford, at the Nike Shoe Drop, at the, you know, like, that that sort of sponsorship side of thing is just, like, cool with everybody. And that's where they... Yeah, like it's almost like when people stop buying records, everyone's like, the rule book's out the window now. Yeah. So it's, uh, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. But to see that, like, the priority among these people is to, like, get in the van, drive across Mississippi, play to the weirdo kids there, sleep on someone's, like, dog bed, yeah. you know, and then, like, get up and punk it out and get to the next place in, like, Birmingham, Alabama, that it was great and so, you know, inspiring, exciting. So when we went up the East Coast, I took them to go visit the discord house and to go see Ian and show them like where I used to cry and yeah, like, you know, yeah. take them down in the basement where all those songs got recorded and written and, and demoed out. And it was like this great experience of like showing him like, this is, you know, I'm sure he knows it's still active in all these forms, but like, this is, you know, it's still a continuum and like the ethics are still being played out. And there's like the story someone told me where, uh, it's like born against, you know, that mm-hmm. band, like yeah. playing the show in DC. And I think, I forget which member's like reading a zine at the table and there's this guy who comes to the merch table like, yeah, I'd like to buy a record and shirt. And he's like, then I look it up and he's like, you know, this stuff keeps me going. And he looks up at Zine Mackay yeah. and it's just like, that's like, I think everyone's fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. It was great. And, you know, and it, you see Ian and it's like, he is talking to Pujol cause he's yeah. been a pen pal of Daniel from Pujol since he was a teenager. And like, there are these like active veins of yeah. like ongoing 
genuine culture being built and networks being maintained that are important to me and, and significant. Well, I guess we can kind of leave it there and like yeah. and stuff like that. That's uh, thank you so much for coming in. This was awesome. And uh, boom, high five. Thank you, Lance. And as mentioned before, Lance will be back for a part two and an update because that was, was a long ass time ago. You know, Lance has done Flophouse since then, so there's like, you know, he's been busy. And so there's, like, uh, a lot to catch up on. So thank you very much for joining us for the lost episode of Turned Out a Punk. Because next week on the show, we are at episode 100. And so I wanted to do something kind of different for episode 100. I thought, like, you know, what would be something that would be worth doing? And a lot of people that I... Not a lot of people that I hit up. A lot of people have been sending in that I should have someone do a Turned Out a Punk episode with me. And uh, I don't have a lot of interest in doing that, unfortunately. (laughs) Unfortunately. But I did think it would be kind of cool to do a kind of roundabout way of doing it, which is I decided next week on the show I'm doing a Turned Out a Punk with my mom and dad. Uh, Separately, they're divorced. And so they will have their own episodes. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to pop the same question I popped to everyone. How did you get into punk? And believe me, we've got a lot more planned for the next 100. Uh, I've got a run for the uh, first five after episode 100 that are, woo, there's some pretty awesome stuff coming up in that one, too. So this show keeps going, you know, from strength to strength as far as my enjoyment of it. And I really appreciate all of you for supporting it as much as you have. And thank you for telling your friends about it. Um, I'm going to be doing all this again next week, but I decided why not do it twice because, God damn it, that's what I do on this thing. Uh, I promise also next week I'm not going to be uh, in a hotel room or flying on caffeine, so we'll be back to normal. This has been a special episode. This is like the last episode, like that Mr. Show sketch, you know, or that old Mr. Show episode, the last episode. Anyway, good night, you crazy kids. Go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do this shit and... Come back next week for episode 100. Subscribe to this. Tell your friends. See you next week. Thank you very much. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.